Amen, and you may be seated. You may be seated. Well, as you can tell, again, we are going to be observe, observing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper today. And, you know, it's always just such a special time in the life of our church. And um, it's really an important time where you and I just really slow things down a little bit in our life. And for our weeks, our weeks are so busy, we're constantly going. But what we need is we need Sundays like this to just kind of chill out, slow down, and begin to analyze our faith. You know, James, or excuse me, Paul commanded in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. James comes along, writes his letter, and he says this. He says, the best way to analyze your faith, to know where you are in the faith, is to examine the words that are coming out of your mouth. See, the Bible teaches as a whole that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if wickedness is coming out, guess what? There's wickedness in the heart. If there's goodness coming out, there's goodness within the heart, the, the, the Bible teaches us. And so James, really beginning last week and last week's message, really begin to introduce this whole idea of our speech, of our words, of the tongue in chapter 3 in verse 1. And there he began with a warning of the tongue. Remember, he said, let not, let, let not many of you become teachers. That is, hey man, don't pursue teaching positions within the church too hastily. He says, because for you, there will be a greater judgment that you're going to face. You will be held accountable for every idle word that comes out of your mouth. So now he's moving from this, this idea of this warning of the tongue to now the power of the tongue. And he's going to do it and un un unpack it really in these three verses. And so this morning, before we take the Lord's Supper, I want to show you just three truths, I think, that are very clear from the text of Scripture this morning concerning the power of the tongue. Let's look at point number one. First of all, we need to see that we are capable of great sin. Amen? Unfortunately, that's true, but I think it's true. I, I, would you identify that as being true? That we are capable of great sin. Now, notice if you will, look in the word of God, what he says here in verse two, he says, for we all stumble in many ways. Now, he, he's giving us, he's beginning with this really incredibly powerful, very accurate statement. And, and, and what he's doing is, what I love about it is he's including himself. He says, we all, which literally in the Greek means that each and every one without exception, he says, he says, me, you, everyone, believer, unbeliever, he says, we all do what we stumble. What does he mean by stumble? Well, the Greek word that's translated stumble here is translated in chapter 2 and verse 11 is fail. So the words stumble and fail are being used by James as a synonym for sin. He says, we all sin, and notice this, he says, we do it in what? Many ways. So the many ways describes not only that there are different types of sins that we commit, but there's also an essence of time there in, in, in how many times you do it. So literally, if you were to take this sentence, it, it would mean this. He would say, for everyone, for you, for me, even the half-brother of Jesus Christ, all of us fail, stumble, sin many times and in many ways. Anybody agree with that statement? It's true. Now, now here's what's interesting. A couple weeks ago, I kind of pointed this out, and I want to repeat myself for the sake of just repeating, but I think it's important. I always kind of get a chuckle out of people's uh, prayers, uh, public prayers, when we pray, I've done it, where we pray something like this, well, Lord, if, if we failed you in any way today, it's like, it's like 
9 o'clock at night. If we failed you in any way today, we're gonna, we ask you to forgive us in whatever way we did that. It's probably not a good question, right? If, or if we have, no, 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 no. Look, let me assure you, better yet, let, let James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, who was being moved by the Holy Spirit, let him assure you that you have fallen many ways and at many times, and I realize it's only 9.30 in the morning. Okay, you got up to come to church, you were ready to come to church, and already you and I are guilty of sin, sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, meaning that there were things that we have done, that we have said, and we have thought that we ought not to be doing. Are you with me? On the other side, here's, here's the key. You better say amen, because I'm about to say something about that. On the other side, there are sins of omission, which means that we are not doing, thinking, and saying what it is that the Word of God would require us to be able to do. So we have already, right here, all of us can identify that we stumble at many times and in many ways. You know, it's an interesting spiritual reality to me, and I think it would be to you, that the closer that a person walks in fellowship with Jesus Christ, the more aware they are of the depth and the breadth of their sin. The less close, and the less familiarity with Christ, and the less walking in, in submission to Christ that a person has, the more unaware they are of their sin. Let me, let me give you an Old Testament illustration. Uh, Isaiah, go back to the book of Isaiah. Here's Isaiah. The Bible says that he is a righteous man in all of his ways. This guy has got it going on. He is a godless, or not a godless, a godly, blameless man. Just check him. Just checking. All right. Blameless name before God. God calls him to a special job. He says, I want you to call out and preach for repentance the nation of Israel because they themselves are godless. Now, here's the crazy part about it. We find from the book that God's people, right, by name, they think they're right with God. They think everything is good with God. But God calls them and describes them as being spiritually dead, spiritually blind, and spiritually deaf. They feel like everything is right with God. God says, nothing is right with me, with them. All right, see that? On the other side, then you have Isaiah, who's called righteous. But when he comes into the presence of God, what does he say? He says, woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Unrighteous person, feeling good with God, feeling good themselves. Righteous person, feeling what? Unrighteous, feeling sinful before God because of his close proximity with the Lord. Now, I bet you you can identify with this. Many people in here can identify with this. And what I mean is, stop and think about how humorous this is for a minute. There are some of us that before we got saved, if you were to come and ask us, did we consider ourselves to be good people, we would have said with a straight face and all confidence, absolutely we're good. If we would have had Jimmy Black come up to us and witness, because he witnesses to everybody, right? And Jimmy Black comes up and witnesses to us, and he would ask you, hey, do you believe you'd go to heaven if you died today? We would have sat there and said, absolutely. He would have said, why? We would have said, because we're good people. And we would have said it with a straight face. It's almost humorous now looking back, isn't it? Because it's humorous now because what happened was God did a miracle in our hearts and in our lives by taking the word of God, encompassed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he illuminated our sinful condition in the depth of our depravity. Are you with me? And he showed us just how sinful we are. 
Remember the testimony of my son? It's everywhere, Dad. Sin is everywhere. God showed us that by his act of mercy and grace. Here we are thinking we're good people. The next thing, we understand just how sinful we are. Here's the crazy part. From the day that the Holy Spirit saved you, you were born again. He justified you, but he also began to sanctify you. He began to change you. Did you know from the point that you got saved to now you look more like Jesus than you did before you got saved? You look more like he did. And stop and think about it. Through that period of time, you have won battle after battle after battle, not because you're good, but because of the goodness of God and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now get this. Now get this. And you are becoming more like him, less sin, more submission to Jesus Christ. But here's the crazy part of it. Many times, even though you're more like him, the closer that you get, the further away that you feel like you're like him. Because you become more and more aware of your sin and more and more aware of how you are unlike the Savior, Jesus Christ. You guys with me? This is how one author said it. God is fitting the believer for heaven, but the closer he gets to it, the more he realizes that he is not fit to enter it. You ever get that? So you can literally sit here today and think, I'm good and be a million miles away from God. And today, sit here and be broken over your sin and be walking in fellowship with God. That's crazy. But that's what the word says. Now, I don't want to leave you on a down note there. It's cool. It's actually a demonstration. You mean I'm getting closer to God and I'm feeling even more aware of my sinfulness and feeling the weight of my sin? Yes, but here's the good news. What it reminds us of is two things. It reminds us, first of all, of our constant need for dependence upon him. Did you know that you're in no, need, no less need of a Savior today than when the day you, first got, you were first born again? Did you realize that you need him as much today? There's never a time, you'll never reach a time in this life or the life to come where you sit there and go, I think I got this, Jesus. I think I'm good. I think I'm okay. I think I can handle this whole Christian life by myself. He goes, no, every day you've got to be completely submissive and, and, and completely dependent upon me. Here's the other good news. God has enough grace to continue to extend to you each and every day, even in the midst of your sinfulness. Not just grace to save you, but the grace to continue to save you and to keep you through this life into the next. So what does the scripture say? It tells us that we are capable of great sin. Now notice where James goes. First, we're capable of great sin. Number two, our sin is most evident in our what? In our speech. In our speech. So what he's going to do is he first says, you are going to sin in many ways and at many times. I'm going to sin in many ways and at many times. We need him, right? He says, but the way that you're going to see it the most lived out in your life is going to be most evidence that sin in the words that are coming out of your mouth. Now, notice what he says next. He says, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, that word perfect, he's used this before earlier in the, or earlier, in the earlier chapters of James. He's using it again. And here, again, he's not speaking of sinless perfection. Remember, even the greatest heroes of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, our greatest heroes in the Bible, they struggle with their mouth. Job, the Bible said of him, that he was blameless and upright, but yet James, or Job says of himself in, in Job chapter 20 or 40, verse 4, he said, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. Why is he putting his hand over his mouth? Because he's afraid he's going to sin against God. That's how vulnerable he is. We already said of Isaiah, a righteous man, right? Before God, God says he's a righteous man, but yet he says, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. 
we go over to the New Testament, we see Peter. Here's Peter, hand-chosen to be one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ. And what do we find? He's not only one of the disciples, he's also the spokesperson. And it just so happens that he denies the Son of God, not once, not twice, but three times with his words. But what about Paul? Surely Paul, the greatest Christian that ever lived, he's got it all together. He doesn't have to worry about this particular struggle, right? He's written half of the books of the New Testament, so this guy's got it going on. But even him, what does the scripture say in Acts chapter 23? He admits that he sinned when he said about Ananias, the high priest, when he said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Even Paul had a hard time being able to contain and restrain and control his sinful tongue. Now, it's amazing to me, let's just kind of put this to, to real life here, it, it's, I, I never know what to do with folks who brag about the ability to tell it like it is, right? Uh, you know these people, right? They, they come up to you and they go, listen, man, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm not uh, going to hide what I'm feeling. I'm going to tell you how I feel. I'm going to tell you what I think. I'm going to tell you what I think is right. I'm not going to hold it back at all. And what's interesting is they're saying this. They're saying it in a boastful way. Like, this is a good thing. I've had on many accounts, like, I didn't know if I had offended somebody or not. Because, you know, some people you just don't know, they kind of look ticked off all the time. And you're like, are you ticked off at me, just the world air? Is it air that you're, you know, ticked off at? What is it? And they'll sit there and go, I don't got any problem with you. Now, this is in the church, right? I don't have any problem with you. If I have a problem with you, I'll come right to your face and let you know. You don't have to worry about me talking behind your back. Now, here's what's interesting. Because, again, they're bragging about this as though this is a good thing. As though, as though they're doing me a favor by not disparaging me behind my back. They're doing me a favor by rebuking me to my face, right? I'm almost like, just do it somewhere else. Do it behind my back. Don't do it to my face, but the reason that people are being boastful when they say that, stop and think about it, is because they think that it's a sign of maturity. That I've learned to no longer constrain myself or hold back. Now I'm just going to be completely open and tell you exactly what it is that is on my mind and that is on my heart. And really what the scriptures say, it's just the opposite of spiritual maturity. The inability to be able to control the mouth shows that you're not spiritually mature at all. In fact, you're not Christ-like at all. It's the opposite of Christ-likeness. Listen to what Peter said uh, concerning Jesus in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23. Look at the difference between that attitude and the attitude of Christ. He said, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the boasting that I'm going to say it like it is, or I'll say it to your face, is not Christ-like. It's anti-Christ. It's not maturity. It's, it's, the, it's immaturity. And so he says there, he says, the ability to be able to control the tongue, all of us struggle with it. Our sin is shown most in it. But if you are ever able to control the tongue, not only is it a sign that you are spiritually mature, he says, but it's also a sign that, notice this next part, that you are able to bridle the whole body. So he gives this picture. Here, here's the bridle, you know, over, over the horse's head and inside of it is this bit. And he says, and, and, and the whole concept there is, if, is, is that, the word, that controlling your mouth is so difficult to be able to do. 
that if you're able to do it, if you're able to control what comes out of your mouth in your speech, now I gotta, I gotta make sure we understand this. I don't mean just publicly. I mean pu- privately too. Because some of us are really good and we've learned not to say bad things in front of other people, but those behind closed doors, we can open the mouth and say whatever it is that we want, right? Just spew out sewage there. So I'm talking about in front of people, not in front of people, behind closed doors, whatever it is, on the telephone, ladies, right? Whatever it is, I guess we don't do this anymore for the telephone because that would be like the old school telephone, right? I guess it's with this. All right, so whatever it is, all right. Or it's no hands at all. Yes, blah, 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 blah. they got a thing in their ear, all right? And so it's, it's, it's the idea is that no matter what, he says, if you can control this, if you can control the words that are coming out of your mouth, and he says, then all the other sins that you struggle with, all the other, um, uh, all the other sins that would be inside of your life, he goes, you can overcome them easily. Whether it's, it's lust covetousness, idolatry, all very difficult sins that you and I struggle with. He goes, if you could learn to control the tongue, those sins would be nothing for you to be able to control. That's how hard it is for you and I to control the tongue. So we see two things so far, and let's look at the third very quickly. He says, first of all, we are capable of great sin. Second, our sin is most evident in our speech. Do you you agree so far with these two points? Here's the third. Our speech has incredible power to direct others. Our speech has incredible power to direct others. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to use two analogies, and he's going to use these two analogies to work as an illustration to demonstrate the kind of power that you and I have in our tongues to not only direct our lives, but the lives of other people. So the first illustration that he gives here is really about the picture of a bit in a horse's mouth. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, if we, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Horses are powerful animals. I'm scared to death of horses. All right, pray for me. Montana trip. I got one coming up, going to preach for one of our previous youth pastors. He's like, man, when you come up, let's go hunting. Great. He goes, good, because I got two horses for us. Oh, not so great. All right. Last time with a horse, first one fell off the back, flipped off the back, did the whole high hole silver thing, but I didn't hold on, went off the back. Second time, got bit in the leg by another horse, you know, crossing by me. So horses and I don't do well, but they are power, powerful animals, right? Listen, I got to preach this. I don't like them, but he, he, he's the one that's giving the illustration, so I got to talk about them. I hate those loathing things. So anyway, and so they're, they're powerful. I mean, you could take a load, right? Hundred, several hundred pounds, put it on me, I, I'm going nowhere. You put it on a horse, it doesn't buckle at all. It's like, hey, did, did something go on my back? It's amazing the power that they have. They can run as powerful as they are, as big as they are, as heavy as they are. They can run a quarter mile in 25 seconds. Unbelievable. And he says, but yet this huge horse, this massive power and muscle, the whole thing can be directed by a little bitty kid with that bit inside their mouth, be able to steer and direct that huge horse. He gives the second example here. He says the same is, is with ships. Notice this in the rudder in a ship. He, he says in verse 4, he says, Look at the ships also, that they are so large and are driven by strong winds. They're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs them. So in the first century, they don't have as big a ships as we do today, like the oasis of the sea, these massive cruise ships, these massive military ships. They weren't nearly as big back then as they are now but they're still pretty big. 
And we know they could have carried many, many tons of cargo. They could have carried several hundred passengers on a ship. Uh, In fact, we read in the book of Acts, verse uh, 27 and verse 37, uh, there Paul sailing to Malta, and the the scriptures tell us that there were 276 people in the ship. That's a pretty big ship, 276 people. And what he's getting at is here's this large ship, and it's being battered by the waves and by the wind, but yet the whole ship is really stirred by this relatively small rudder. So in both illustrations, he's trying to convey the same truth, something very small, controlling something very big. And what he's saying is, hey, listen, the same is true for the tongue. It's so small. It's a small, small member of the body, but yet it controls and directs your life and my life. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad would sit there and he would say, that mouth of yours is going to get you in a whole lot of trouble. Did you ever hear that? Not from my dad, but from your, your parents, right? That mouth, would, that, that would be weird. So anyway, um, that mouth of yours is going to get you in a whole lot of trouble. He never said to me, that mouth of you is going to get your mouth in a lot of trouble, as though my mouth was isolated. He says, no, your mouth is going to get you in a whole lot of trouble. And I was a sarcastic kid when I was little. I know that's really hard for you to believe. But I was the kind of kid that even in college I got in trouble because I would speak out in class. I was one of those, unfortunately. Somebody would say something, and I would kind of have a smart aleck comment. And guess what? Not once was it only my mouth that was in detention. It was my whole body that got myself in trouble. You see what's happening? So my own life... I direct the course of my life, either good or bad, how? By what's coming out of my mouth. But it also directs other people. And here's what I want you to understand. It's got power for either good or it's got power to influence other people for the bad. Let's take for an example, you know I'm a huge World War II buff. And it's what I specialized in my undergrad is specifically Hitler's Germany. And when you go back and you, you, you think about how that whole thing began, World War II, it's just amazing. Because in the wicked sense, here is Adolf Hitler, who writes down all of his philosophies of life and really what he sees happening for the, the, the motherland, for Germany. He puts it down in a book called Mein Kampf. And then what he begins to do is he begins to speak consistently all the truths that he finds within that particular book. And what does he do? He impacts millions of people within the German nation to do what? Millions of people to declare war on the rest of the world. Did, did you hear that? To declare war on the re- Hey, bring it on. He speaks. He convinces them to the point that he actually thinks this can work. And you know what's crazy? It almost did. And then on top of that, he also convinced them that there's these group of people called the Jews that along the way, we need to completely annihilate them and wipe them off the face of the earth. And millions of people, through hearing him speak and reading his writings, guess what? Did exactly what it is that they called them to do. That's influence. Wicked influence, but it's influence. But on the other side, we also see, and one of my heroes of all time was Winston Churchill. Here's Winston Churchill. I love it. Big, plumpy guy right? Kind of nerdy glasses. He comes out. He gets on the radio when he knows that they have to go to war. He's been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing for war. We got to go to war. We got to stop him. The leader above him, got rest his soul, wouldn't do anything about it. What does he finally do? He gets to the airwaves and he comes to the airwaves and he says that our finest hour has yet not come. He stirs the whole nation of England and he stirs them up to be able to oppose the wickedness of Hitler. 
and they begin to fight against them, using it in a good, good way. Stop and think about how much influence the, 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 the mouth has had in propagating the gospel since the time of Christ, right? Literally millions of times, billions of times perhaps, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ has come out of people's mouths and been able to direct them from a broad path to a narrow path, from destruction to eternal life. Can you imagine that? That's incredible power. You know, I think we see both this kind of the, the evil, influence for evil and the influence for good as well. Stop and think biblically for a minute. In the beginning of time, here we have Satan. He influenced negatively. He comes and he sows lies into the ears of Adam and Eve. And what do they do? All of creation falls. All of creation falls. Is that powerful words? Powerful influence? Powerful direction? Yes. What comes on? Here's, here's another one. Jesus dies on the cross, and before he dies, he looks up to heaven and says, it is finished. Just so you know, what he was saying, it is finished, if you don't know this, I want you to understand, when he said it is finished, he was making a declaration that everything that needed to be done to ransom sinners had been done. That through his death on the cross, that all of the wrath that was meant for sinners like you and I, remember we sin in many times in many ways, had poured out on him, was satisfied on him, and now it was finished. So it was disrupted then, and then guess what? Everything that was disrupted was now being set right. That's influence through words. Now notice something just really quick if we can. I want, before we take of the Lord's Supper, just very quickly this morning, I want you to be gripped by the reality of how much influence that each of you have in what it is that you say. Did you know that you can completely jack up somebody's day just by you showing up and saying the wrong thing at the wrong time? You guys realize that, right? That how many times has somebody said something to you that they just said something and you couldn't get it out your crawl for the rest of the day, right? I mean, and it was a good day. You woke up. There was the kind of cereal that you wanted. There was enough milk, unlike ever at my house. Never the right cereal, then when we have it, there's never the right milk. Where's the milk? All right, well, honey, that's what happens when there's five kids in the house, right? And, and so, so you sit there, and it's not right, but say it's all together. Everything comes together, right cereal, right milk, all comes together. Go to work. I mean, it's a good day. You guys with me? Good day. Everything's great. Somebody comes in to the office and says one thing, and for whatever reason, man, you can't kick it for the rest of the day. Has that happened to you? I almost can guarantee that you've done the same thing to somebody else. One of the things that we've worked on here for years and years, and we've seen a lot of, and I praise God, we have not seen a lot of physical abuse within marriages. Praise God for that. But you know what the big complaint is? The big complaint is, is verbal abuse from one spouse to another. And it's so harmful, and it's so horrendous. And when you hear these people in their homes talking the way that they do to each other, they are directing not only their marriages, but each other's lives. Got that. Dads, do you understand, moms, do you understand how much influence you have in speaking and directing your children through the words that you speak? That when you sit there and you say, hey, listen, you blew it again. Hey, you're not a good girl. Hey, you're a bad boy. Hey, you're doing all this stuff. And I want to make sure, I don't want to fill them full of a bunch of nonsense, okay? They need to understand they're sinners, right? And they do things because they're sinners. But here's the other side. Did you know that, that, that you can say certain things that are going to direct them in a certain way, but on the other side, you can be so positive by just coming to them and saying, man, I love you. 
man, I value you so much. Man, you know, you're really good at fill in the blank. Hey, you know what? You just make me so proud when you do this. You begin to speak words like this. You begin to navigate people in an incredible way, either for the good or for the bad. So let me ask you, how have you been navigating people? Because here's, what I think, what the scary thing is. On one side, we could come to this message, and this could be new, good, brand new news for all of us. You could sit there and go, you know what? I realize that I've really been using my words in a very harsh way to my wife, my husband, my kids, to my coworkers. I could be setting them off in the wrong direction. And right now, you could be shocked at the reality of the Holy Spirit coming and convicting you of that soul, that, that part. Here's the scary part, though. Some of you might very well know what you're doing. And that becomes all the more scary. You might very well know that the words that you're saying is hurting those that are around you. I think we got two different things, but I think the answer is the same. Repent. If your heart is so hard that you're willing to inflict difficulty and pain on other people and direct them in the wrong way, there's something seriously wrong with your heart. The only key and the only hope is for you to repent to God, call out for mercy and grace, and he'll forgive you and change you. But for some of us, maybe it's just a little bit more on accident. Maybe it's like we like to rib somebody or we like to say something or with our particular words, we're directing them either for, for the bad. Again, what's the answer? To repent, to repent and to turn. God forgives, God restores, and God will help. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you this morning. God, we thank you. And Lord, now as we're about to take the Lord's Supper, before we do, we need to spend a couple moments really, really doing just some business with you, God, to analyze our hearts. God, right now, the way to analyze our hearts is through our speech. God, maybe there's somebody right now we need to even turn to and say, hey, would you forgive me?